You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Welcome back to the show, Downers. My name is Matt, and we have a tremendous episode for you today. I'm going to talk to Josh Zepps. All right, to be honest, I already talked to Josh Zepps. I'm recording this intro after the fact, as most people tend to do, and I guess you know that. So I ain't trying to pull a fast one on you, but I talked to Josh Zepps, and it was one of my favorite conversations, one of my favorite episodes I've ever had, and that's because Josh is a uh, real intelligent, fast-paced thinker. He's good on his feet. He's a podcaster. He's been in broadcast and journalism and on TV. And his podcast is called We The People Live. And it's one that I listen to a lot. So I get that effect of having somebody that I get to listen to on a podcast a lot. And now here I am face to face with him, or at least over Skype and get to just jump right in and talk about the stuff that I've already heard him talk about, which is kind of a fantasy really for, pe- for people that listen to podcasts. And I, I'm lucky enough to get to do that with Josh Zepps today. Uh, it really is a good conversation. I won't spoil anything about it for you, but you'll I think you'll enjoy it very, very much too. I also want to tell you guys that we're on tour right now with Emory, playing down the West Coast. So if you want to come out and see me or meet me or see my band Emory, which you may be a fan of already or not, you're welcome either way. We're doing shows for $10 a piece down the West Coast from Portland to Phoenix, Arizona. You can go to emorymusic.com for that. And when you do get there, you'll see that we're building a new bus that we've uh, are outfitting it and raising some money to pay for the renovations and repairs to the new bus that we bought. And you, we have released a live album with a couple of original songs on it that only the people that help us raise money and build the bus with will get. So you'll see that over there and see if that's something you'd be interested in doing or supporting so it can help Emory tour more and more and more. Now, there's one other thing I want to tell you about before we get to all the way to the episode, and that's That's It Fruit. Now, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do. Keep this in mind. You're going to go to thatsitfruit.com, and you're going to enter the promo code DOWN, and you'll save 10% off any order today. But let me tell you what That's It is. It's fruit bars. They're these fruit bars. I have some sitting in my office. They're, they're incredible, and there's nothing in it except fruit. In fact, their ingredients are fruit plus fruit. That's it. That's where they came up with the name. Here's the problem with fruit. Everybody has a hard time keeping it, buying it, storing it, using it. Those It could be a challenge, but there's a ton of people that have selected fruit to be part of their diet. So if you're a person that thinks that you would like to eat fruit and should eat fruit, I bet you you're not eating as much as you wish you were. And that's it is a, is a really good way to, to remedy that because they are sitting there in your house or by your office. You can carry them around for snacks. You can send them with your children to uh, for snack time at their preschool, for instance, which is what I do. Or when my daughter's in the office, she says, Daddy, can I have one of those blueberry bars? And I can give it to her guilt-free, knowing that it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. There's no sugar added. It's a good source of fiber. It's non-GMO. There's no preservatives. There's no fat. It's gluten-free. It's all natural. In fact, it's kosher. And, and to be honest, it's vegan. And it's raw. They don't even cook them. They, I mean, you, you know, you can get your real fruit this way. It, it's good. It's portion-controlled. It's always in season. You don't have to no picking, peeling, washing required, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so people ask, though, they say, what about sugar, though? There's sugar in it, right? Well, if you eat fruit, this, there is sugar in fruit. But here's what's not in it. They do not add sugar to it at all. In fact, 
it's, there's no concentrates or purees, just as you wouldn't find those in real fruit. So that's why we feel like it's a good choice for kids and athletes or anybody who wants to eat real fruit. So again, you can head to that'sitfruit.com and enter the promo code DOWN to save 10% off any order. Now, you can also, you've seen this stuff out there. It's out in the marketplace. They have it at Starbucks. They have it at CVS. You'll see that Whole Foods, uh, this product is really doing super well. I've seen it a lot of places. So I'd recommend just grab one of them. Grab one next time you're in the Whole Foods or the Starbucks, taste it, give it to your kid, see if it makes sense for you. If so, one more time, go to the website, that'sitfruit.com and order and you can get 10% off and you'll be supporting the show. So thank you to That's It Fruit and let's talk to Josh Zepps. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Hey, Matt. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Hey, good. How you doing? I'm doing great. You're back stateside now? I am. I'm in Los Angeles as of last night. Oh, good. So we're on the same time zone, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. Where are you again? I live in Seattle. Great. How's it up there? Oh, it's nice. It's the best time of the year. Y'all might have some heat in Los Angeles, but this is the time when Seattle really shines. Is this time of year something else? Yeah, it's getting warm down here. I know Seattle's got uh, no offense, but like what about three or four weeks of uh, beautiful weather and then back oh. to the rain, uh, back to the rainy cold. It's a little bit more than that. Um, it's real nice from I don't know, a end of April, May to beginning of October is, is super nice. But I grew up obviously. Uh, you know what's funny is I grew up in the South and people uh, in Seattle are so unfamiliar with my accent. I figured that'd be the next question coming from you is, where's your accent from? You live in Seattle. I can't, I can't ever tell anybody I live there without having to explain it. But the yeah. funny thing is people in Seattle are so unfamiliar with Southern accents mm-hmm. that they, I, I cannot tell you how many times people ask me if I'm from Australia in my city where I live here. What? Can you believe that? Yeah, I know. People are... Let's listen. Don't get me started on uh, Americans being parochial. I mean, they can't even tell the difference between like an Irish, English, South African. You know, yes. it's just like that's fun. I don't understand. That's right. They they think that I'm South African sometimes too. And I'll tell you what I blame it to. Maybe this will even lead us into some conversation here. But I I blame it on the fact that the people here in Seattle on the West Coast are so progressive and liberal to the point where they think the south is just some actual really bad place they don't go on vacation yeah. there yeah. you know they, they've gone they've been to australia and england they haven't been yeah, to south carolina right. they're right. not even no, interested. basically the south the south to people in the pacific northwest or even the northeast is essentially a a nasty buffer en route to mexico right yeah, and they don't differentiate with Oklahoma or South Carolina, anything. It's 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 no, it's just a big, it's a block of it's a block that you, it's a block of no man's land. Yeah, I even find it to be, and you know, I actually even find it to be a closed-minded thing, and there's no hmm. real good point in me trying to point out the closed-mindedness of the people here. But you wouldn't believe it from my point of view. I mean, from my point of view, the the, the way they paint the South or certain people, or yeah, it's it's a real, it's actually a really narrow-minded 
kind of way that they look at people with total impunity. Because yeah, I think, I think they get it. I mean, I think people, having lived in Brooklyn for years, I think people, at least in Brooklyn, get that they're being narrow-minded, but they just don't give a shit. Yeah, that's a little day. I didn't bring that you know, it's like, yeah, so we're being narrow-minded about these specific differences between different strains of redneck asshole. Right. Like, that's the way they think of it. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry that I'm not passing accurately enough which particular type of redneck asshole we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't give a shit. It's yeah. like... Exactly. It's, it's like it's like if you if you talk to an Islamophobe or something about like the difference between do you know that like Sunnis are different from Shiites and like that you know Iraq is right. is Persian and like Iran and but you know I mean Iran is Persian but Iranians are different they'd be like I don't care not interesting all towelheads yeah and thing in reverse like they're all, you're all southern so what if, who gives a shit if you're from Oklahoma or if you're from Alabama you're all southern that's right well we're, that's what we're trying to do that's what we're trying to do these days is do the hard work of show, trying to show people that people are complex and it's worth getting into and doing and I'm not defending the South saying those people aren't what you think they are they're all great or whatever they got their problems I, I get it but it's I understand what you're saying amazing. you're saying the Confederacy was wonderful and the South shall rise again I can read between the lines Matt I know what you're <laughs> well, saying you should, see, you, you should watch here if I have to make a comment if I do make a comment about you know my friends my wife's friends they think if I open my mouth about those things like wait a minute which one? Mm. They, and they want they want me to vocally distance myself from them before I participate. Yeah. I know I can feel it. I mean, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. into it. But I can feel them wanting me to distance myself from where I came from before I'm welcome to really engage. I have to go out of my way to show I'm not that guy, or whatever. But I like that to is just, make it but a little that is more unclear. I mean, that is something that we all have to do, though. Mm -hmm. Like at the moment, unfortunately, regardless yeah. of if like if you're white and you're going to talk about race, then you have to begin by saying. Like I acknowledge that for for four hundred years, black people have been shat upon, and like I can, I'm an anti-racist. Right. And and then you can speak. Like exactly. if you're a Jew, you have to be able to say like Israel's done a lot of bad things, and like they shouldn't be oppressing the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And now I've earned my right to go on and talk about something. Like you know. That's so I think in in, in any in any case, if you're in a position of what could be perceived as being privilege, mm -hmm. or even just perceived as being groupthink of some kind, mm -hmm. then you have to like distance yourself from it before you can before anyone will listen to you. Yeah, and I guess that has increased. I'll give one anecdote of the South, a funny one of the South being, I mean, it is to some degree, they're not very, op we know they're not that open-minded, but a friend of mine's dad called him recently and said, I think it was in regard to the protest uh, that they had here in Seattle that was the anti-Sharia law protest, and then there was counter-protesters. I don't know if you saw that story or not. No. But he, all he got from the headline, that there was a people actually here, a very small group, that were protesting against Sharia law, and they were supposed to have it in Portland. Portland banned them. They came to Seattle and were mm -hmm. kind of an anti-Muslim protest or something. And yeah. they, But it was overwhelmed by counter-protesters, like 10 to 1 or 100 to 1. Yeah. And um, But it made some news back home, and then my friend's dad uh, calls him and said, so I heard, and his legitimate take on that was he saw on the news where it looks like they're pretty close to passing Sharia law in Seattle. <laughs> and, and he believed yeah, it. He, right. was, he thinks mm -hmm. Seattle is so liberal yeah. that that would be feasible, that they're so crazy yeah. that they're going to actually pass. He thought they were lobbying to get Sharia law passed, yeah. like as if Seattle that was what the- was so the liberal <laughs> that it wants to be a conservative, theocratic Muslim <laughs> Uh, enclave, right. right? So I, I, you know, and it's it's a complicated it's a complicated world, and I find myself right in the middle of it. And uh, I'm interested. I love I love a lot of the stuff that you do, and I look up to you as somebody who navigates these things with. Uh, I think it's the confidence with which you're willing to put yourself out there and say things and do things that aren't going to necessarily be well received. But if anybody's taking you seriously and honestly, they know that 
you, you're not the racist. They, they have to do gymnastics to actually say that you're the racist or big and those things. And the people yeah. that are occupying that space seem to me so important. So I, I like to try to be as confident as I can. And it, you know, I was saying on the podcast recently that growing up, I used a ton of racial slurs. I did. Like, if you, mm. if you just had audio of me, you'll hear them. I've said them. Mm. You know, I, ha- I, I went through my... Uh, I actually went through my house recently. Was finding old stuff. I have some Confederate flag stickers and a belt buckle. I, ha- I own one. Like I, you know, it's just. What did you I think? Had. What did you think that they meant, Matt? When you when you used to have them? Oh, I didn't actually really want to do that. Go into this, but okay. Um, I uh, I just man, it's a it's a touchy topic to even talk about. I understand, but um, I thought it was cool. I thought I didn't think of it as a symbol of hate. I don't ever think even. That's what I'm saying. Even when I was on the playground and we would use racial slurs here and there, those weren't bad words, but fucking shit were bad words. And I didn't want mm. to do that. Racial slurs, they, you just heard them enough to where it didn't seem that bad and it just seemed normal. So anybody that's being honest would understand that it was common, at least in the 80s, in, in, in that kind of way. And was the, school, was the school integrated? Were there yep. black people in the school? There were, yep. What did they think of racial slurs? Well, I'll give you an example. So... When like there's there's a lot of phrase the the simple way would have been just phrases that contain like the n word. There's a few phrases that people would say commonplace like you n rig something. I don't know yeah, if you've heard yeah. that or not. Yeah. And, then, and yeah. then when we played kickball in the playground, if you 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 play the, <clears throat> either the way where you have to tag the person with the ball manually, yeah. or you could throw it at them and hit them from far away, and that was called n ball. That was the right. I don't know another term for it to this day, but mm-hmm. that's what we called mm-hmm. it. So stuff like that. I'm not saying I was out there. But in no way did I, and I would use those words, but I didn't mm, think of myself. Mm. I mean, I had the black people would, we were playing kickball with black people. They'd say the same thing. They'd yeah, say, yeah, say, yeah. You know, um, and I'm sure if you went back and looked at it, it'd be absolutely like horrible. But I didn't ever think of myself as racist. And then when people would use those, say, real bad racist jokes or actually talk in private about, you know, they see black people on TV and would throw around racial slurs, I always felt really bad about that. Like, I always knew that was wrong. Mm. But mm. The, seeing the Confederate flag didn't, I mean, it was on the General Lee. It was on the Dukes of Hazard. It just didn't seem that yeah. weird. It just didn't <laughs> seem weird, you know, yeah, for people yeah. that were well-meaning or whatever. And you go back a generation before that, my dad had the first uh, black person that came to his high school forced in. It was one black guy and his came in wow. and had to go to his high school. And in my dad's generation, they've gone from that, which he says it was horrible, like the way that was in the 50s, it would have been 60s. Uh, and it was just so horrible. They tried to get him to come to the, uh, my dad was class president or something, tried to get him to come to the reunion. And like the whole the whole school of these people that are seen as the worst people in the world, mm. I mean, they, I guess they're filled with white guilt now, but they, they tried to reach out to them and, say, and you know say how sorry they are. And this whole group of people has come a long way in their lifetime. So that's worth noting, I would say. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's, it's the thing that's tricky now is I think that we've gotten so sensitive about particular words or phrases or, or what I call kind of conversational tripwires mm-hmm. that when you cross them, you mm-hmm. set off like all of the all of the can. It's like being in the DM, like a demilitarized zone or something, yeah. and you you trigger a tripwire, and all of a sudden all the cannons start firing at you because you say, for example, in the in the process of having a conversation about something, you use the N word just in mere reference mm-hmm. to the existence of that word. And I hate using the term the N word. I think it's so infantilizing, stupid. Yeah. It's like this. It's just ridiculous. It's not something. If you said the N word, the phrase the N word outside of the United States. No one would have a fucking clue what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, that wouldn't even occur to people. In Australia, there's no way that you would call a person 
a nigger to their face mm-hmm. in, a, in an accusatory way, that would be completely, completely unacceptable right. in the same way that it is here. And it should be because it carries a huge amount of baggage. Sure. But because Australia didn't have slavery and because Australia didn't have any institutionalized racism towards African-Americans, it has its own sordid history with Aboriginal Australians, with the indigenous population. Mm-hmm. And that can be compared to some extent to the, to the problem of, of Native Americans. But because there's no history of, uh, of, of slavery or, or anti-African Australian racism in Australia, that word carries no baggage and carries no, and there is no legacy of it. So the idea that you wouldn't even be able to utter it because it's magic, because people right. are going to be upset, because even mere reference to it is going to cause fragile people to fall apart is really bizarre. And I think, it, I think the problem there is that it actually conflates We've become so hypersensitive about this stuff in the states that we're we're conflating um, mere usage of controversial words with actual racism, the likes of which you're talking about existed in your in your dad's day, right. and which still exists all over the place. I mean, there are still people who actually think that black people are inferior and don't deserve the same of opportunities course. as white people. But that's a different claim than the kind of than pointing to systemic racism and the existence of white privilege in kind of subtle ways and the the conversational intolerance that we have towards people using using words like the n-word in conversation Mm -hmm. and i think that the more hysterical we get about policing people's behavior and language and using the correct transgender pronouns and fighting for the the bakers that have to who have to make the the birthday you know the wedding cakes for gay people ensuring that no one is allowed to create toilets on a on a (laughs) university campus that is only for like all of that, I think, then tarnishes the actual, the, the legitimate aspects of the progressive movement and, and makes life more difficult for genuine anti-racists and, and genuine progressives because it essentially emboldens people who might be willing to, yeah. people who might be willing to support Donald Trump or, uh, or far-right candidates. Yeah. Uh, and I think Trump is a, is a disaster and a, and a calamity, and I think we should be doing everything that we can to... Um, to kind of reassure wavering Americans who might be sympathetic towards the alt-right or towards Trump that mm-hmm. the left is not just a big namby-pamby, yes. uh, school-marmish, finger-wagging brigade of, of idiots who are going to jump down your throat just because you happen to, to, to use the wrong transgender pronoun or you, you happen to use the N-word in, in conversation, not in an aggressive way. What matters is what's in people's hearts, and I think, that, I think we've lost focus on that. Yes, absolutely. And you, and you mentioned that in there that you confer the meaning of the, first of all, the words in, themselves are important, and then I just can't stand words becoming less and less able to be used. It really frustrates me as somebody that cares about language and communication, the more stuff you put off limits. I mean, it's almost the Confederate flag's almost in this boat. I'm not a defender of the Confederate flag. In fact, I, I would call myself a progressive person in the sense that, I mean, you should make progress and learn. And I feel like we were doing that until recently, until 2016 and 17. I feel like we were. I thought it was kind of happening. I'm very disappointed by the polarization of, of where we're going. But part of it is I think there's 10% on each side that are obnoxious, and the most of us are just afraid to talk honestly. And that's a huge problem. So that's why I think it's important to say, and same, like, for instance, the Confederate flag being on the General Lee on the Dukes of Hazzard show, it wasn't intended of of anything other than just, it didn't, it wasn't trying to make a statement. But if you made a TV Mm. show today and put that on there, you would have to be a maniac or a monster or a racist. Well, I mean, it was in context at the time. Like, I got into an argument on Twitter with somebody who was objecting to my to my defense of Bill Maher for using the N-word on, on TV. 
um, what, a couple of months ago, I guess. And someone was saying, like, that's not a word that should ever be uttered. And, for example, what about the Confederate flag? Do you think that the Confederate flag should ever be flown above a state house or in front of a... Or a shown person? on a Google image. I mean, we just or, can't even show well, it, you know? <laughs> that's the, but that's the interesting distinction, right? And I said, I, I think that to, to fly the Confederate flag is the equivalent mm-hmm. of using the N-word in you. an act yes. of aggression or saying, like, I believe in this interpretation of race relations. Right. But to say that you can't ever use the word nigger when you're just talking in conversation the way that we are right now about right. the existence of the word, to me, is a little bit like saying that all images of the Confederate flag should be erased altogether, exactly. including from encyclopedias and including from, like, you know, so what, we're just going to delete it completely because it's so offensive that we can't even talk about, what if you go to a, if you go to a museum, then they should be able to display the Confederate flag in a museum so that you can understand the context. What is what is troubling about the Confederate flag is not the existence of that image. It's what the existence of that image is used to mean when it's flown proudly by people who are intentionally making a using it to, Mm -hmm. to be a form of speech in the same way that when you, if you, if you call someone the N word to their face, then that is an act of aggression in a way that simply discussing it in conversations is not. So I think that that's a fairly good analogy. Like use these terms in order to talk about them or in order to understand them. But and don't prohibit them in that context. But understand that that's different, and both left and right have to understand that that that's different from using them in an act of aggression or using them to entrench the kind of power structure that's existed for the past few centuries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, in the same way that you confer meaning from the fact that you uttered the word is the same is the way people confer you are invalid or lumped into a category simply because you associate with or have on the podcast somebody who, you know, that whole thing where the people you associate with and their views are now conferred to you is, is a similar mm. pro- is a similar problem, I think. Well, that then depends also on how you have the, the conversation, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. said something now that would, that I deeply disagreed with, then it would be my obligation, or rather, if you were on my podcast, for example, it might not be my obligation as your guest. Maybe I'd be more polite than that. But <laughs> if you were on my podcast, it would be my obligation mm-hmm. to challenge you and then to, to yes. dig into that. And then if that disagreement got wider, then, then the disagreement would become more and more stark and we would stake out our own positions and we would figure out what each other believe, but we would hopefully use the conversation as a, as a mechanism to really burrow into what it is that we actually think about things. I think the problem that also exists at the moment, especially in podcast land, is that sometimes there are just shows where you have somebody on and, then the, and they just talk and they're given no pushback. Mm-hmm. or any real sense of agreement apart from just whatever it is that you want to agree with them on. And then all of a sudden, they've just had that platform for three hours or whatever, mm-hmm. and then they go their merry way. And I think there's a legitimate criticism. As as people get more and more skeptical of mainstream media and more and more susceptible to the idea of fake news, and as there's more and more content, and as more and more of us are getting our information from people who already think like us on Facebook, we're more and more siloed into our social media bubbles and into our political bubbles. The country is getting more partisan. Mm -hmm. This kind of what I call a conversational chasm is growing where there are people where people, you know, who are alt-right Trump supporters can't even talk to, to, you know, to to urban, urbane, cosmopolitan, uh, you know, coastal elites anymore. Like there's just no connection. It's so hard just to even get past just first base in, in order to get a conversation going that if you end up sort of having a, that we need to use, I, I guess, alternative media and podcasts as a way to have conversations that mm-hmm. actually 
land with one another, where we're actually listening to each other and actually responding and pushing back and talking and wrestling in interesting ways. Because I think we do a disservice to viewers and listeners if we just do the kind of, what I guess I'd call the stenography style of broadcasting, where it's like, I'm in favor of free speech, therefore I'm going to invite a whole bunch of people whose ideas I disagree with to just talk for three hours and I'm not going to question them at all. And that, that proves my, my free speech credentials. Yes. Well, it doesn't. It sort of proves that you're just giving a platform to the alt-right or to the far left, whoever it is that you might be giving a platform to. Yeah, so I've just kind of stumbled into, not, I don't even, not this arena, but even podcasting and things like that, um, I don't expect you to know, but I come from the background of musician. I've been a touring musician for 15 years and have been, been podcasting and do this full-time, this type of thing full-time now and still some music. But uh, I, don't, I don't have any background in broadcast or journalism and things like that. What I, but I, what I've always cared about and liked about is talking and discussion and intellectual conversation. That's, that's what you do most of the time when you're in a band. You just sit on tour buses and you meet people that you could never uh, imagine that you would meet and be around. Mm. And you're forced in to sit with them for days and days and weeks and weeks at a time. And it's just unbelievable. People I never thought I'd be able to know or get along with or, you know, ideologically totally different. And then you wind up, you know. So I'm really interested in this space and I just enjoy talking and listening and stuff like that. But I don't, uh, you're somebody I look at as it's interesting to me the way that you have, a, I guess, a journalism background, and now it's like, you use the term public intellectual, and what is the role of this, and what are we doing, and what are podcasts doing that regular mainstream-type media isn't doing? I'm trying to just get get my, get my a grip, because I find it powerful, I, the, the stuff that I listen to with you, and you do, such, like I was saying before, you do such a good job of holding it down and being tough or disagreeing. For instance, we had Andy Kendler on your show, and you know, you didn't let him get away with being insane. He's your friend, and that mm. one came across mm. in context and all that. But you didn't. I mean, you had to. I mean, that was totally fine. I yeah, thought, for, I thought that was super interesting how you do that. And then I want to talk about the lady that chatted on the HuffPo Live way back in the TV show kind of thing. Uh, her, oh, yeah. Suey, uh, I'm sorry, Suey Park. Yeah, Suey Park. That was yeah, an incredible moment, and I would like for people to watch that and see what that is. But I admire so much your ability to sit in the space and do those things. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about well, thanks. today. Yeah, yeah. So for people who don't know the Andy Kindler episode, uh, I mean, I have a show called We The People Live, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's a, a podcast which you can find on all good podcast apps. Uh, and uh, and Andy Kindler is a great comic who is who who was a, a regular on Letterman, uh, who was an employee of Letterman, used to go out and do bits on Letterman's show. And um, has since become quite aggressive on Twitter <laughs> as a as a as a pro Muslim or rather just an anti bigot. He really mm-hmm. perceives himself as being mm-hmm. anti bigotry and anti Trump and, and and so on. But part of that has become a real dislike or, or loathing of the of anyone who criticizes Islam. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't like people who criticize religion. He's quite pro, just let everybody believe whatever they believe. And that would include for him Sam Harris and Bill Maher, for instance. That's right. So Sam Harris, who's also a friend of mine, and uh, I say that not to like drop names, but just to put context around why I was so aggressive towards Andy in some respect, was that I have a lot of time for Sam Harris uh, he and I have worked together and are friendly together, and and the idea that someone would be consistently bad mouthing Sam and, and what I think is misrepresenting his ideas about Islam by claiming that he's motivated by anti-Muslim animus in some way, when in actual fact he's just sort of in, an intellectual critic of all religion, but specifically concerned about the theology of Islam as it gets enacted in jihadism and extremism and violence and and deeply conservative you know, anti-feminist, homophobic strains of Islam around the world. 
Uh, I had Andy on the show, uh, I guess, a few months ago, and Andy and I kind of yeah, butted heads, and that became a bit of a thing. Um, and then the other thing that you were talking about with Suey Park, I used to work on HuffPost Live when that was a, a going concern. I was one of the founding producers and present, presenters on that, which started out as, as like a 12-hour-a-day online streaming uh, talk news network, essentially. And uh, people may recall that a few years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert did a mm-hmm. what, what I thought was a very funny joke in which he was making fun of racists. So he was. It was at a time when Dan Snyder, who's the head of the Reds, of the Washington Redskins football team, s- established a foundation for uh, Native American, like a Native American charity, basically. Um, in order to prove that he was not racist against Native Americans, because they would, everyone wanted the, the, there was a push to rename the Washington Redskins, because that was regarded as being offensive. And so Stephen Colbert <laughs> came on and said that uh, in order to prove that he's not racist against Asians, which was a criticism that he had, he had had, because he has this hilarious character called uh, Ching Chong Ding Dong, who yeah. was him doing a bad Asian impression. He said, uh, I, I hereby announce the formation of the Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation <laughs> for Orientals or whatever. <laughs> Orientals or whatever, yeah. And, right. <laughs> and that, that was the gag with him in character as his Colbert Report uh, conservative character. So sure enough, that got people angry. Uh, and the lead, the person who was leading the charge was a, a young, early 20s Korean-American activist named Sui Park, who I had no idea who she was. I didn't know anything about her. All I knew was, and it was a very, very quick interview, she was going to be coming on to explain why she wanted Colbert to be canceled. She wanted the whole show to be canceled because she thought this was offensive towards Asians. And I was simply trying to explain or trying to, see if she understood that he was being anti-racist by making fun of Dan Snyder's racism. Right? Right. I mean, that's what satire is. You take an intentionally ridiculous position in order to show how absurd it is. And I couldn't understand, I couldn't for the life of me understand why a person would not, un- would, would, would want someone fired for having made a satirical point like that. And then she started pulling out during the interview, uh, oh, well, I couldn't, I know that you as a white man couldn't possibly understand her. And for me, when people pull out the you as a white man couldn't grasp X or I as a insert identity here, Mm -hmm. that to me is just such a bullshit dick move. It really is. It's not, it's Mm anti-intellectual. It's stupid. I'm not saying that people don't have different experiences. Yeah. If you're an African-American, you probably have different experiences of racism than a white privileged Yale law school dick does, right? That's fine. But the way that we're going to find common ground and communicate about these things and the way that you're going to win allies or have intellectual conversations about the boundaries of satire is by making good arguments. It's not going to be by saying my opinion trumps your opinion because of the color of my skin or because of what's dangling between my legs or not, right? And so when she did that, I was just like, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that I was born a man, but that, you know, what, being born a man didn't deprive me of the ability to think rationally about <laughs> yeah, what right. satire is, you know? We're, we're capable of having a conversation about the limits of satire, even though I do happen to be, I am sorry, a white man. And that whole conversation then blew up. I mean, people can people can Google it. I think it's still on YouTube if they yeah, just Google it. I want people to watch it because I, I just think it's so neat, the two things that happened in that. One being that I, I, I can't tell if you were actually angry or mad or laughing. Like, did you feel defense? Like, what? how did you actually feel during that thing as a professional is, what, is, is one thing I'm asking. Do you recall? Uh, I, um, I think I just felt 
uh, I just felt a bit over it. I felt like I wasn't, I felt like, yeah. like I want my show to be a place where human beings have rational and civil conversations. If someone comes in here and starts pissing and shitting on my face, like don't expect me to just cop it. Don't, right. don't think that because you've pulled the race card and the woman card and you're on TV that I'm going to be cowed and, and play along with your game just because I know that there'll be a big backlash. You don't play that fucking game here. Not here. Like go out and do it on MSNBC, but I'm not going to, like I just felt like fed up of like who who the, who the fuck are you? Like, what do you mean I, as a white man I'm not going to understand? We're having a conversation about Stephen Colbert, about satire, about you're you're the one who wants him to be fired. Like you tell me why you want him to be fired. Don't say I can't understand because I'm a white man. Fuck that. Like, I just so yeah I was. I mean I wouldn't say upset. I was just like, dude, you're on my fucking show. Like I'm you're, I'm giving you an opportunity to to tell me what you think. And you're telling me that I can't possibly think, I can't possibly understand what you think because I've got a dick and I'm not Asian. Right. All right. Then there's nothing to talk about, is there? Right. So, but well, like, yeah, that's right. Well, see, it works super well because it's, it's, it, there was this moment in there to me where it's like, okay, now that this guy's acting like a normal person on air, like, of course you were mad, but you didn't become defensive and animated like you were attacking back. It was like, wait, I'm just going to hold the intellectual ground and say what I think. And you didn't back down in the fact that, wait a second, I'm not racist. I'm not even being a jerk here. No, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think this makes sense to me. I'm just going to maintain logically. A lot of people either back down or become aggressive in a mm. defensive way. And the, you holding that line, which is more common in conversations and podcasts, especially than it is on a, on a TV clip, it just made her seem so... It just exposed the silly verbiage that she was using and the tone of voice. It didn't even sound like a real person talking if you listen to her. Mm. She's speaking well, that's, in these that's clips the and these ways yeah, and, yeah. and these phrases. And just, it's like, you're not even a... She's obviously not even being a person. I mean, I don't want to keep banging on about her because yeah. I don't know anything about her. And some people say that they've heard that she's like come around uh, now and is like is more regretful of like. I mean, she was a young kid as sure. well. Like, I, well, she was just, doing just the, the style from, like, of her. communication is so like the importance of like I, I'm not banging on her either. I don't I don't know anything about mm. her, but that mentality mm. is very common. And more importantly, in media and in TV, it's just you're getting this fakey this stuff that is just so fake. And I, every single day. More people are going. Wait a second. That stuff's fake. That's weird. I mean, well, it's gotten so much. Weird. I think it's gotten much worse. I think. I think that was a bit of a canary in the coal mine because I think now, like all, when you when you ask what it was like in the moment, I think what it was like in the moment is actually something that that we now experience almost every day if Correct. you work in the media or if you work at the coal face of like progressive politics. So you spend a lot of time in that. In I don't I don't know the identity politics like uh, space, which is. We've just become a bunch of identities babbling at each other uh, fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Like she, all I all I remember thinking during that uh, during that interview was like, oh, she's not even engaging with me as a as a like in in my ideal world, people would engage with each other as a couple of brains, right? Like we <laughs> would all reason with each other as if the other person was capable of reason and was capable of understanding where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. And then together we would grope our way towards some kind of mutually agreed upon vision of reality. But all she was doing was, you are the box called white male, and I am the box called woman of color. And those two identity, those two identities will just keep bumping up against each other. And there's no attempt or desire or need to try to break out of those boxes and find any kind of common humanity because you are white male and I am woman of color. Well, 
that I think is just deadly. That is toxic to being able to construct any kind of uh, civilization worth living in. And we're getting, it's getting worse. It's getting more and more like that, I yes. think. Like the, the ability for us, for example, to have a conversation, if we started having a conversation about Black Lives Matter here, it would be a large contingent of, of people who would regard the conversation as being totally illegitimate, like not even worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Because anything that, that we might say, it would be between two white men. So what could we possibly understand? And if we were two women of color, then that conversation would immediately have credibility. Yeah. Now, why? I mean, with the exception of the fact that, of course, there are, there are aspects of living as a black American that we, do, we haven't experienced. But do people think that we're so unimaginative and unempathic that we can't talk to our black friends and listen to black people and come to an understanding of what that is like, that, they're, they're, that, it's, that we're incapable of imagining it? I don't mm. think we are. I mean, I, I just don't think we are. We, no. we are. A lot of this is about data, a lot of this is about facts, a lot of this is about justice, a lot of this is about our opinions about morality and ethics and the role of the state and how aggressive cops should be and how uh, how dangerous black people are to other black people and crime rates and drug laws. Like There are all kinds of things that we could talk about that we would have a constructive conversation about. But well, at some point we have to, or well, else it's just she's in. You know, Asian yeah. people are in charge of this, and black people are in charge of the cops. Well, now. I, mean, right. I mean, of course, it, it has to. You have to engage with somebody somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that, well, you have to be able to represent other people's points of views and hold them with your own in a in a way. At yes, some point, I mean, I hope, I hope so. But if we don't, we become the Balkans, right? Yeah. We just become Serbia and Bosnia, and we be, and it, it becomes like. You know, I mean, imagine what a civil war, in, not to get hysterical, I don't think there's going to be a civil war, but imagine what a civil war in America would look like today. It wouldn't be the South fighting the North. It would be factions and identities going at it hand-to-hand in the street. It would be more like, you know, Ireland or something between the Catholics and the Protestants um, through all those decades where, like, neighbors are, are hating each other. And, and I think, I don't know whether we're going to get there. I think we won't. But you can see the beginnings of it. You can see the glimmers of it. You can yeah. see how much Republicans hate Democrats and how much Democrats hate Republicans and how much African-Americans like think white Americans just have it coming and how much white Americans are upset or confused about how they should engage with, with African-Americans. Yeah. Uh, and to, 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 for some of them, resentful of the fact that they're constantly regarded as being racist. It, simply must, because they, it must just be the thing where... You, the the philosophy that underlies it just must be you don't you can't give an inch because it's an enemy. I mean, once you're in that mode, it's you know, mm. that's the way. For instance, the NRA thinks of like they wouldn't take a reasonable gun law because it's still an inch towards them giving up ground. Period. Yeah, you that's know? right. And, and so, one, if you dig in as this is my group, and mm. the other groups other, it just it, it only escalates. You know, I suppose. There's, yeah, that's there's got to right. be some way out of it. But at least. There's people trying to do some of the, the the hard work, but it's not a huge. I don't know if there's much reward in it, but there's some reward at least in being honest and getting out there and doing it. But I'm curious, how did you start in journalism, and how do you think about the difference in like what journalism is and what TV is and what public intellectual stuff is and the roles? This is uh, an area that I'm like, oh, what, well, what what are these things? Like, what am I doing? Just talking to somebody about yeah. opinions? Is that stupid or useless mm. or? You know what? What do people need to be? What, how do you see those things? Yeah, no, I think it's useful. I think it's fair. I think conversations like this are very useful because they're a good entry point. Like, not everything has to be journalism. So I started out. I started out in journalism a little bit by accident. I, I actually want. I didn't want to be a journalist per se, and I, I'm actually not a, a journalist. I don't think it's correct to 
to say that I am because I, I've never I've never had a beef. Like I've never been a reporter, right? I've never I've never been fact a fact checked reporter with an editor who's asking me for my sources and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've always been essentially an opinion okay. opinion guy. And I mean, when I was in my teens, like my heroes were were Letterman and Conan O'Brien and John Stewart and um, like Woody Allen and a lot of a lot. Of, I basically just wanted to to do silly, fun, smart stuff on TV or radio somehow. And uh, it looked to me like there were two ways of doing that, either going in, into stand-up comedy or going into journalism. And stand-up is such a grueling, horrible. I didn't want to be traveling around the country, staying at $40 motels, like with semen-stained sheets and yeah. like in some fucking, you know, I mean, you've been in music, you know oh, what yeah, it's that's, like that's you're doing it when you're doing it. That's exactly <laughs> what I signed up for. <laughs> when you're doing a tour, yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be doing that. And it just, it just struck me as thankless. And in hindsight, maybe that was the wrong, maybe that was the wrong choice because maybe, maybe stand-up actually would have been a clearer path to where I ended up going anyway. And I think if stand-up had if stand up in the nineties had been as vital and and interesting as stand up is today, I probably would have gone into stand up. If there were like Louis C.K.'s and um, I, and Amy Schumer's maybe, and uh, I, I don't know, then maybe I would have. But back then it was kind of it was all it was all Seinfeld and Seinfeld ripoffs, right? right. It was all jokes about about how bad airplane food right. is, just say rather airplane than jokes, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas Louis is actually talking about life, like he's actually talking about the big stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but so I went into, I did journalism at university and went into, um, radio broadcasting basically on the production side and managed to, to scoot my way across to being on air by writing and, and voicing satirical comedy sketches. Uh, so political, doing political satire, uh, on Australian radio and came to the States basically in order to do improv comedy actually at that upright citizens brigade theater, which is, uh, one of the big improv mm-hmm. groups, you know, in, in New York. Um, founded by Amy Poehler and uh, and a bunch of other people, and so I did that. I did all the I did all the classes there and have performed there with Amy Poehler and and other people. And that's been that was like hugely informative and, and instructive in terms of me learning how to listen. I think the most important thing about broadcasting is actually just listening to what the other person is saying. And improv is a good training ground mm-hmm. for that. So if people want to go into broadcasting, I would definitely, or really anything, I would, I would encourage them to do some improv at UCB or Groundlings or Second City. I'm glad to hear you say that. I took an improv class recently. I'm going to take more and I have a whiteboard mm-hmm. up behind you you can't see and I wrote as big as big letters as I can on there, listen. So I, so I know good. to listen while good. I'm podcasting. So I'm yeah, on the right track with those two. That's great. But Absolutely. I do, I think improv cool. is, is super great for, for everybody. Yeah. So you've moved you know, through journalism into, I mean, where you're at now is a whole new place. So you still do TV well, yeah, and so stuff after, like that. So. I mean, after improv, I got I got a show on Discovery Science Channel um, briefly, where which was uh, called Brink, which was sort of it was basically a ripoff of the Soup, of like Talk Soup, right. uh, but for nerd news, and that lasted for three seasons. And then HuffPost Live was being launched by the Huffington Post, where they were trying to figure out what to do with uh, what what I guess a, a new incarnation of of conversations about what's going on in the world would look like if you didn't know anything about television or radio and didn't have any preconceptions about about the way that broadcasting already looked. And um, and that was great. I did that from 2012 until last year. And and it was really towards the final year of it that I thought I should just be podcasting because what, what the future of conversations actually looks like is this sort of thing, is like podcasting and, and online streaming and, and much more independent stuff. And that's how We The People Live came about as a way of thinking, what would what would... What would a smart, funny conversation about what's going on look like in the 
21st century. So I don't think of, I think the only, when you ask like what is the role of journalism and like media and the changing face of media and broadcasting and what you're doing, I really think the only thing that actually needs to be carved out of that space and given a special kind of jigsaw piece of its own is traditional old school journalism, mm-hmm. by which I mean the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, I mean, those would be the two biggies in the in the United States, uh, the Guardian in the UK, uh, the BBC, uh, PBS here, like places where people, I think there's a lot of misinformation at the moment uh, amongst people who are concerned about fake news, who don't understand what newsrooms are like, but like the New York Times newsroom. Donald Trump tweeted the other day that, like, when you when you hear people say, when you read a news story and it says that sources say something, be aware that the, the journalists have just made up those sources. Normally, right. that could not be further from the truth. That that could be true if you're reading, but if you're reading um, Breitbart, but it's not true if you're reading the New York Times or the Washington Post. Those reporters go out and they source things extremely, extremely thoroughly. They usually need at least three. Their editors know, need to know who the sources are. They like they are professional institutions. So the only so I would I would keep that in a separate bucket so that we don't kind of taint real news with the kind of bullshit that you and I do. But um, I think the bullshit that you and I do is is valuable in order to to have a stimulating conversation about ideas. But it's not the same as as strict journalism, yeah. which I think needs to be needs kept on. to be yeah. But because that blurring that one has been has been bad. So in one regard, you listen you can listen to Sam Harris, who's a is a credible expert neuroscientist, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he's given a lot of opinion, and then I, I'm just a, whatever. And you know, you have a journalism background doing this, so all those things are blurred. So it must. But you're saying it must be very. It's not the same thing to claim you're some some alt right news source of made up crap that mm. that we have to differentiate it that's totally different yeah, but I mean, it's good I otherwise that things are blurred out and people can just do yes, whatever yeah i think in, yeah i think in the I think in general it's good that that, that anyone can produce anything mm-hmm. but i think the i think what i think we're in an interim phase right i think in 100 years time obviously the media landscape is going to be even more diverse and everyone is going to be broadcasting everything in hologram 100% of the yeah. time to or to anyone who can uh, who can pick it up but I think by then we will have understood or we'll have systems in place or we'll have education in place that people will be able to understand how to filter the, the, like the facts from the noise, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and they won't feel so inundated. At the moment, we've suddenly, just within the past five or ten years, found ourselves in a situation in which anyone can broadcast anything, but nobody has any fucking idea how to figure out what's true and what's not or what opinions are worth listening to and which aren't. Mm-hmm. So we're all like floundering around in the dark, bumping into the furniture like blind people. And uh, and a lot of people are just latching onto things that seem true-ish because they get shared them on Facebook or they hear Alex Jones say them or they hear some entertaining person on a, on a podcast say them. And we're not yet trained. We, have, we haven't done like media, uh, I guess, you, you, would, you would need some kind of, I think there will probably be elementary school level programs in media literacy to be like, okay, this is, these are, this is a kind of article that you can trust. And this is the kind of article that you probably can't trust. And I think there's, I think technology companies probably have a role to play here that in the future, companies like Google and Facebook uh, and Amazon will build algorithms that enable, that give something a kind of a Snopes style credibility score just without a human even having to be in the, in the, 
uh, in the room. Like they, they'll just be able to analyze language and data and compare it instantaneously with a whole bunch of other things that that are known to be true online. In order to say that this article is probably the- mostly true or probably mostly false. Yeah, but people need some kind of guidance, and they're not they're not getting it. It's just it's just crazy. But that doesn't mean that the crazy won't ultimately lead to a a better world. Yeah, I think so too. And it's it seems like one of the reasons that conversations are working or can work is because you can kind of there's a calibrating effect to hearing, for instance, somebody's body language and tone of voice, and obviously improvised. Mm. You know, the fact that everybody you're not regurgitating talking points, although you're fluent in these topics, I'm sure. You know, you clearly are just responding to my questions in real time, so people have an ability yeah. to trust that. Plus, there's the body language thing and, you know, just being able to do it in long form. You, you're able to do that. Plus, there's so many different outlets. There's people I listen to that are libertarian, this or that, that I think are pretty good. And if there's a big issue comes up, I don't necessarily identify with them or everything about you or anybody else, but I will go listen to three or four people that are talking about a new thing that's happened, and then I know how to calibrate my. Well, I would think based on these three people that I consistently listen to and know what they would think. Now, I'm not as far mm. as them on that, but that lets me know it's a calibration kind of effect. That um, yeah, that yes, that's them. right. I, I think I think listening to more than one source is is good when it comes to opinions about things. But I just do that like you get I'm, to know the person that you're listening to all the time. Like yeah. here's this guy. I'm always to the left of where this guy is. Okay, well then I listen to him, and sometimes I'm closer and sometimes farther. But at least I can get a grip before I go out in the world and start talking about it. And then the yeah. other thing in there that's interesting is the problem has been exposed. And maybe it's a good thing and an adolescent part. But right now, the lazy thing to do, the trick, the shortcut is to attack the position fundamentally and not engage with it. Like to say, mm-hmm. oh, that's invalid. So you said Snopes before. Well, let's say what's mm. wrong with Snopes then. Now, now mm. Google's using Snopes to verify facts. Okay, well, let's talk about, let's, instead of trying to fight these specific facts, we'll just try and discredit Snopes as a shortcut. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of conservatives I've now heard uh, say that Snopes is uh, is is biased, and um, there may be some. I think it's funded by someone who they think yeah. is left wing or something, which may be true. But it doesn't even but matter the, if it's true. It's fact, just easy to attack. Rem- the yeah. fact remains that that the 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 fact checking behind Snopes is valid. This is the other thing that uh, that I think people need to be aware of. Yeah, it's not a, it's not great if something is funded by, say, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, if you don't like Rupert Murdoch, right? But that doesn't mean that everything that that publication does is corrupt or untrustworthy. And similarly, it doesn't, like, I think people focus too much on where the money's coming from and think that everything is corrupt. This is something that you'll hear from, like, the Young Turks and the, and the kind of the Bernie Sanders wing of the, of the progressive movement as well, which I have a bit of a problem with. So even if it's true that Snopes is funded by a left-wing radical, you can take each page of Snopes.com and you can ascertain whether or not it's telling the truth and whether or not the fact check is correct or invalid. And if you go through a thousand of those and they're all sound, who gives a shit who's funding it? Mm-hmm. In the same way, like, you know, people will say, oh, you can't trust, say, the Wall Street Journal because Murdoch owns it. The Wall Street Journal does incredible reporting. Now, their opinion page is extremely right-wing, <laughs> extremely conservative for me, but they do amazing feature stories. And if you were going to throw out the Wall Street Journal because you think Rupert Murdoch is too right-wing because he runs, he owns Fox News, you'd be missing out on incredible journalism. So I guess this is a way of saying journalism is not a person. Mm-hmm. Journalism is, is a process. Journalism is a thing you do. In the yes. same way that intellectual honesty is a thing you do, no one is perfectly intellectually honest, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is 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 Edward Snowden uh, a journalist? 
I mean, in some respects, what he did was an act of journalism. Mm-hmm. What he did was an act of defiance by, by blowing the whistle on something that he thought should be open for national debate, that he thought was secret for the wrong reasons. And he handed that over to responsible journalists who could then sift through all of that information and release it to the public in a responsible way. Unlike Julian Assange, who just throws everything up on, on the web and has no journalistic instinct whatsoever. Like Julian Assange is a monkey throwing shit at the wall and Edward Snowden basically is behaving the way that I think a journalist ought to behave in uh, figuring out what's important and then delivering that, even though he's not a journalist. Mm-hmm. That's uh, interesting as you say that, that journalism in itself is a process and you, mm. uh, in the sense that it's not, not a person. I, that's very, that's illuminating to me. It's, it's similar that science is a pro- scientific method. Science is a process. Exactly. And I run That's in a right. lot of uh, Christian circles. So Christians love to attack science, it's the scientists and the scientists themselves mm. and say they don't, they're just trying to this or they have an agenda and a worldview and they don't want to. And I'm just like, no, you don't understand. The sci- it drives me crazy because sci- the premise of journalism and science both is to uncover truth, which rewards the scientists mm. for doing so. Not They're not trying to uphold uh, whatever, evolution. I mean, they'd love to dispel it if they could, if it was true and they could find it. And certainly That's there's, right. you know, academic biases and there's things. You can find uh, scientists that have agendas, for sure. You can do mm. all this stuff, but the pro- it's actually a process, not a person. That's really That's right. I agree. It's, it, it's immensely frustrating to me when religious people say, mm-hmm. Look, science is an orthodoxy just like any other. And the fact that a majority of scientists say X doesn't mean that it's true any more than the fact that a majority of priests say X means that that's true. People believe that, you know, that Jesus was divine and he was born of a virgin. And scientists believe that the world is billions of years old. Either way, you're you're essentially just taking an opinion poll and you're taking it on authority because you don't know either way. You haven't personally done the research into whether the earth is billions of years old and you haven't personally studied theology well enough to know for sure whether or not Mary was a virgin. Therefore, either way, whether you're a scientist or a religious person, you're essentially just taking it on faith from a bunch of people who are who are telling you what to believe. That is so misguided and it's such a it's such a nasty, dodgy little uh, little little dickhead move because what it fails to realize is that the reason you believe in science is not because scientists tell you to. You have faith in what scientists are saying because they are explaining a process, as you say, a a process. And if it's true that 50% of all the things that scientists say today will be Will end will turn out to be false, which is probably true. I mean, at any given point in time, there's another thing you hear religious right. people say, or that you hear climate science deniers mm-hmm. say, with people who call themselves climate skeptics. Um, you know, they'll say there are tons of things that we think we know right now that'll turn out to be false. That's true. That's correct. I say that's true, but when they're not going to turn out to be false as a result of us more closely reading religious scriptures, or as a result of us just asking the fossil fuel industry what they think is likely to happen to the climate. Mm-hmm. They're going to turn out to be false because scientists will continue doing the process of science and will disprove each other and will gradually hone a better and better understanding of the world. Yes. That's the way that science works. More we're not faith in scientists cases. because they're, they're high priests of science. We have faith in a process of accruing knowledge and then testing that knowledge against real-world results and gradually tweaking it so that it more and more accurately reflects yeah. The way that the world actually looks to us—that's ha- that's how we have satellites and GPS and the iPhones. It's because of of 
this constant feedback loop that science provides us with between our ideas and what reality then tells us. Religion has no such feedback loop. Yeah, empirical it's verification, I suppose. It, yeah, you know, exactly. You make a prediction and then you can prove that it's true. Not only prove that it's mm-hmm. true as if it was to support your ego, you, you, you need to prove that it was true in order to make predictions, in order to send the satellites or do the GPS or whatever. I think the That's ancient right. Greeks or somebody, for instance, yeah, maybe everything we know will be wrong, but it'll be more... It, it's wor- it's it's pragmatic. It's functional. Like I think the ancient yeah. Greeks or some people they used to say, oh, there's four types of matter: air, and then wa- rocks, and then water. Maybe they said there's three types, and mm, they group and, to- fire. and fire. But they, and they like to group together. And that description actually, and they they said that's what the world's made out of. The universe is made out of. And they were right in a, in the sense like air is going to be with air, rocks will be. It's predictive. It's it's not a very high resolution tool for understanding <laughs> things, no. but it, but it does work. The rocks will be at the bottom, the water will be below that, the air will be above that. I mean, like it, it's functional evolution, you know, and, and most everything in science, it functions in a way that it makes a prediction that we aren't trying to prove anything. It's not about proving so that we can use it and it, mm. and it does work. So that's right. why and, and, and sometimes we do, we, we do prove things. I mean, yeah. no matter what we end up believing and what truths get overturned, it's, it's very unlikely, I think, that we will turn out to have been wrong about, say, atoms sure. being the building block of the universe. And we'll, 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 it's very unlikely that we'll be wrong about DNA being the building block of, of life. Like, we will make tweaks to that. Right. But these are theories that are so solid that are so true, right. that are so clearly in, in, in concert with everything we know about everything, mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, put it this way, if you could, to the extent that you could disprove something that we believe, like imagine, um, you know, you could find out that all of our radiocarbon dating of rocks turns out to have been wrong and the earth actually is only 6,000 years old, or that evolution didn't happen the way that we thought it was because uh, it actually happened the way that creationists say it did and we found one all you would need would be one fossil that was out of place right just all you need is one fossil of a rat at a time when there were no mammals yet mm-hmm. and that would that would throw all of biology on its head but nowhere anywhere in the world have you ever found such a thing and if religious people were true about creationism you would find it all over the place mm-hmm. but suppose you found that scientists would be Delighted. They'd be confused, mm-hmm. but they'd be extremely delighted by the challenge of figuring out, wow, what is this? How can we explain this? What is our new theory for this? Whereas if you challenge a religious person and, and say that what they're claiming is incorrect and provide them with evidence, which we do all the time, they're constantly confronted with evidence that, that what's in the Bible is untrue, then they regard that as being an act of bad faith. And they don't regard that as being an interesting challenge at all. They just say, well, it must be a mistake, and ours is not to question why, and the Almighty Father is, uh, is, is mysterious in his, in his ways, and just go back, to, go back to praying and believe on Jesus, and all, all will be well. That is not an intellectual pursuit. That's just hanging, your, hanging up your brain at, at the door. Right, and it's not, it's not honest in the sense that uh, even if you did find something that, let's say, furthered the resolution— uh, or the refinement of a religious text. Even let's say it was true in a literal sense. Like, for instance, you bring up atoms. So we say it's not likely that we'll find out that atoms are not the building blocks. But at some point, we people claimed it's fundamental. There's nothing smaller than an atom. Well, turns out we were wrong about that, and we're all good with sure. it now. The truth behind mm-hmm. that is subatomic particle this, and gluon, muon, Higgs yeah. boson, and so forth. Yeah. And we're all happy to now engage on that level and further refine our everything we're looking at in, in 
quantum electrodynamics and building TVs with that knowledge now that we have it. Mm. Good mm. for us. And in religion, people don't do that well. If we did find something more fundamentally true, that seemingly contradicted thing, you just can't deal with it. Otherwise, you know, you're not even open to that. You have to suppress it to mm. bolster. You know, you don't have that same attitude. So in some sense, scientists can totally be wrong Exactly, and then when the when they find out that they are wrong and they find more evidence for it, it can be deeper without invalidating the the, the well, thing that's, they that's said a, previously. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the, the, normally the the way in which scientists are wrong is that they have been inadequately mm -hmm. uh, wise about the way that they were describing something. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's not that the atom, it's not that they were wrong about atoms. Mm -hmm. It's that they didn't understand that atoms are actually also made up of electrons right. and the nucleus, right? Do they, you know, so it's it's actually just through more and more and more understanding. Uh, I mean, the whole I don't I don't even understand how there's still an argument about religion. Really, I don't even understand <laughs> how people are still religious. I honestly don't. It's just baffling to me. It's so it's so fucking dumb. And I'm not, I'm not talking about. I, 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 let me be clear. I'm not saying that the idea of there being some vast mm -hmm. ineffable incomprehensible consciousness that lies behind the whole cosmos is ridiculous. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm essentially agnostic to the idea mm -hmm. that when I lie on my back in a field and get stoned and gaze at the night sky, like, I am as tripped out as anybody about what on earth is this whole thing for? Why does this even exist instead of nothing? Why are there so many stars? What are we doing on this little speck of dust whizzing around this little gas, this little ball of burning gas on an outer spiral arm of a galaxy in a universe populated with billions of galaxies and there are billions of stars just in our galaxy. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And if you didn't have a sense of kind of reverence towards that, that borders on the spiritual or the transcendent, I think you, you would be lacking something in your human, mm -hmm. what it means to be human, yeah. right? So that is... That, that sense of magnificence and, and then just the fact that we are conscious, not only that all of that exists, but that we are made out of the stuff that is, is built inside of stars. I mean, most of the universe is just hydrogen mm -hmm. and we are all of these little heavier elements like carbon that are produced inside stars that have accreted on this little rock and have evolved through natural selection to be self-aware enough to even be having the conversation that we're having right now and to be looking back. We are matter looking at and thinking about matter. I mean, all of this is extraordinary. So I have no problem with people getting their rocks off in, in having some kind of a quasi-spiritual uh, epiphany like that. But the idea that all of that is adequately or best explained by books that were written thousands of years ago in the Middle East that told mythological fairy tales about people walking on water and turning water into wine and parting seas and being born of virgins, mm -hmm. when those same kinds of mythical fairy tales have been told in every culture all over the place, very similar sorts of stories, and religious people seem to ignore all of those other stories in all of those other cultures and think that they're just fairy tales, mm -hmm. except for the one in their own culture that they happen to have been yep. born into, that yep. is miraculously, magically, the one that actually explains the nature of the whole universe and cosmos. Just, I can't believe that so many people are that fucking stupid. <laughs>
<laughs> well, Josh, I'm going to have to tell you this. Is a, you will have reached a really interesting audience with this. I think a good I amount. Mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if most of my audience are those people. And I'll go farther. I want to tell hear you. from them. Yeah. I want to understand. Well, it. I just think it's so neat that we can have this conversation in that regard that they get to hear that from you in a way. I mean, you know, that, that's, the, that's the place that I come from. And to be honest, I am a Christian. Like that is, I mean, I have some of those mystical and goofy beliefs, but I acknowledge that they're goofy and I'm way more into the empirical part of science. And I, my favorite stuff to consume is you and Sam Harris. And I actually have no disagreement with, with anything that you said there whatsoever, except for the part where I must be really fucking stupid. Other than that, but I don't think I mean just... <laughs> well, but, hang on. But, but, what, but do you believe that, that, uh, the, that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus? Well, I'll answer it slowly, but maybe. I'm, I might, actually. I'm not sure. Like, I used to would have said... Would, on what grounds would we believe that, right? Uh, in compared, like on the, on the scale of 100% belief, like I 100% believe, basically, that you are a real human being and that I'm having a conversation with you right now and that you are not just an avatar, a computer-generated avatar that's been created in my computer, right? Uh, and I 100% believe that I, my name is Josh Zepps, and I'm currently in Los Angeles, California. I maybe 50% believe, uh, I don't know, some story that the Australian Aborigines might tell about their migration patterns that happened 50,000 years right. ago. There's no reason not to believe it, but it's been passed down by, you know, verbally, from a long time ago, and so it might just as well be myth. That's sort of 50-50. I might, like, 90% believe that the Napoleonic Wars happened the way that we think the Napoleonic Wars happened because there were a lot of different people. I'm very, very disjointed from the actual happening there. But you have to constantly, what philosophers call, conditionalize your credences. Mm -hmm. A credence is a, is a maybe belief, mm -hmm. and conditionalizing is just putting it on a scale from, of certainty, Mm -hmm. So we go through the process all the time of like, how certain am I that X happened or that Y is true? And the further you go back in the past and the further away from you you get and the thinner the, uh, the, the documentary evidence is of mm -hmm. something, the lower and lower your, your confidence that it's true has to become. So, and then also how absurd the claim is also has to factor into it, right? Yes. So if the claim is that 1,500 years ago, Muhammad flew to heaven on a winged horse, that's an extremely unusual thing to happen. So if someone tells me that a horse had wings and flew up into the sky, I'm going to need quite a lot of evidence, even if it happens today. Right. The yes. idea that I'm going to believe someone who tells me that it happened many, 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 many hundreds of years ago on the other side of the planet and there's no real documentary evidence of it apart from people who were writing about it hundreds of years later, makes me very skeptical. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the Bible was written, most of it, hundreds of years after the death of Jesus Christ, by people who had never met him and didn't know him and didn't know anyone who knew him, makes me curious as to why people would think there's good, credible reasons for believing that the extraordinarily implausible magical stories in it are anything other than stories. Right. No, I'll give you, uh, you, you know, essentially all that as I will agree with you, and I'll still hold in what I'll acknowledge there's a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance that, that may exist but has to be at least worked through. So I, most Christians, if you had to give them that survey thing that you would give degree of confidence to, um, they would 
out of duty check 100% sure on all of them in, in order, yeah. you know, or something yeah. like that. And I couldn't yeah. be farther from that. I'm not certain of anything spiritual, even the existence of spiritual, anywhere close to as confident I am that the atomic number of lithium is three. You know, like that, th- those are not the same things. But that's still, uh, you know, it's still something that... The only way I can describe it is, given all apologetics and all logic and all those things, you have to give the things, uh, like for instance, you would say, it's possible that there's something outside of materialism. You wouldn't give a super high confidence that you're sure that there's not. So that, mm. right? You, you, the fact that materialism is all that there is and our consciousness arises only out of our atoms and molecules and subatomic particles and quantum phenomenon, you wouldn't give that, uh, you're not 100% on that. So no, you, no, you no. might even be close to 50, but that doesn't thwart anything that you say on that. And so maybe we, maybe me and you meet at 50-50 on that, like, I don't know, or 75-25. Yeah. And then as it gets down to, was Mary actually a virgin or was there an error in the reporting there or translation or whatever, uh, you got me. It wouldn't. But for me, you know. Matt, the, dif- the difference there is that with, mater- with, with the question of whether or not materialism is all that there is to explain consciousness, mm-hmm. you and I are both essentially equally completely in the dark, as, a, as is every human being who exists. I mean, we just don't know. And there is no expert who could tell us because we don't understand what consciousness is yet. What, what gets different for me is when there are fact claims mm-hmm. right. that either happened or didn't happen about history. Yep. I mean, well, even I, if you exist, even if you were Mary's next door neighbor 2,000 years ago, you would have no decent way of knowing whether or not she'd been screwed by someone else when she gave birth to, that's true. to her baby, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even then, when, if she said, oh, no, I'm a virgin, and she had a baby, you'd think, really? I'm not <laughs> even sure that makes it to 50-50. Oh, yeah. Right now. Right, yeah, yeah. Thousands of years later on the other side of the world, sure. the only way that you can say anything other than that's bullshit mm-hmm is because you've got an identity and a whole set of beliefs and values that you think are wrapped up in having to pretend to believe that thing, right? right? I mean, you think that if that weren't, if that's not true, then Christianity isn't true. And if Christianity isn't true, then what is my community founded on? What are we all doing here? What, where do we get values from? Uh, the whole edifice of a whole bunch of other stuff that you believe starts to mm-hmm. start to get cracks in it and starts to fall apart. I think that's why people bullshit themselves yeah. about believing things that they know deep down they can't possibly know. I mean, if there's one thing that we know we can't know, it's what death is because we don't even know what consciousness is yet. So what happens to me after I die? We know we don't know that. We know we don't know that. Right. And religious people are the only people who claim that they do know. Yeah. Well, they I mean, do that, know what Christians claim they do know what happens after after we die. We know we don't know that. Come on. Come well, on. Well, look, I you know, for I, for instance, the think even considering heaven to me seems to be an absolute fool's errand. So, although I would maintain that I am a Christian or believe or I'm a variety of believer, there's ain't, ain't no way I'm touching the subject of what heaven is like. It seems completely absurd to me. I'll, I'll even grant that. I'll say that I've made a lot of movement too, which might be interesting because I think that's it's just one of the nuanced things about how people are are moving a lot. When I ponder true believers of Islam and the Quran and stuff like that, it's just it's mind blowing to me to to have any Christian frame or background and ponder that and see what it is and how. It's so close in a lot of ways to Christianity, and they're the people that dislike it the most, and they don't even, like, it's, I'm paying very close attention to fundamentalism of 
of Islam and think it's very similar to Christianity. I, I grant mm. that. I've come from a fun, more of a fundamentalist or more conservative evangelical background, and it's clearly not. That's it's clearly not right. Like that. That's the. I mean, you could say it's a journey. Maybe I wind up not Christian. You know what I mean? But yeah, but I, I'm I taking mean, the analytical approach there. And the thing that may be left out that you, uh, I mean, this probably sounds stupid in, in, in some sense to you or exclusive, but the, the thing that keeps me there, the thing that, that made it, that made the whole thing fall into place for me in the first place is uh, something that could only be called personal spiritual revelation that then seems to line up with some things and truths in the book and in the scriptures. And then you've got to do the work of trying to unpack them and see what that means. Was that a true encounter that I had with God, the spiritual kind, the goofy kind, when people explain it and give testimonies? Well, I've had something like that and am convinced that it is, that it matters, that something's real there. There's something different. I'm sure of it. Clearly, I grew up in America and had access to Christianity, the Bible, and people told me it was that. And I think it that sounds about right to me, but now, now the rest of my whole life is going to be untangling that. And maybe it gets disproven to me. I don't really know. But if that gives you any frame of reference to it, yeah, I'm married, I, mean, I like the analytical approach, but I, yeah, I don't but have I, enough evidence, even believing everything you and Sam Harris say, to like a, it still can't turn over that moment and some moments that I've had. Although, well, it I, I don't even have to. It I, I just don't it have strong confidence on almost anything. So, okay. It shouldn't. But, but, but those kinds of, I mean, well, the only thing that has to matter is that is that you recognize mm-hmm. that those kinds of experiences of of transcendent spirituality where it's clear where you get a deep insight that there is something else there that you're talking to that there is something going on that is beyond mm-hmm. normal scientific explanation that those experiences are had by everyone of every religion including atheists mm-hmm. well m- maybe i mean you don't know what mine was, well, though. Like, I, I don't, and I can't relay it to you, so we can't really compare well, them. Put it this way: we 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 know that everyone of every faith uh, claims to have transcendent spiritual experiences that uh, that confirm their faith, the truth of their faith. True, but you start talking about getting stoned and looking up at the stars and having that transcendent moment. Well, I like that too. I'll get high yeah. and I'll look at the stars and I will have a transcendent moment that you're talking about. I'm talking about yeah. something else. That's the only way I can tell you. <laughs> I'm talking about well, something different than that. Well, 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 but well, well, I, well, I know, well, I acknowledge that, that too, and that that could be attributed what? to the star gods or whatever. You know. Well, what is the else? What is the else? Well, that like I said, it, it kind of it kind of uh, evades. Uh, description like that's only so it sounds like i'm saying i've had an experience you haven't but that is my, my experience tells well, you me may have that i have you may have so I've but, got, but, you know. but the thing is every person in every religion claims that they have so mm-hmm. so there's no so yeah. you might be right well i ain't that, out to prove it is my point and i have low degree of certainty of things like the virgin birth so if that's i don't yeah. know if that's a defensible position or one that i will maintain the rest of my life and no i mean but, all, all, all i'm saying is the only thing that you need in order to become skeptical of formal of of the dogma of formal religion is, a, is an understanding that w- whatever it is about consciousness and our relationship to the cosmos and to whatever intelligence might be behind it, that experience is available to people of all faiths. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's possible that you had one that no one else has. Or but just some other, most other Christians have had, possibly. That, that you had one that's different from what most other no, Christians maybe have maybe what I, what, what I and some amount of Christians have had is similar and different and unique. That's possible. Yes, that's possible. But it's no more likely than that the kinds of transcendent experiences that Hindus have it, are the correct ones. From your and point that, of view, I 
completely agree. Again, like not from I, my I, point know. of view, not from my point of view, just just from logic's point of view. Mm-hmm. If you have if you have three people who are all saying that they've had personal experiences that demonstrate to them that the orthodoxy of their parents yes. that they were indoctrinated with from birth is the correct one, then a, an impartial logical bystander has to say it's what's probably going on, and we're not talking about three, we're talking about 300. What's probably going on is that they're all tapping into something that is either uh, a god or is something biochemical in the way that mm-hmm. our brains are made up, and but they're having some kind, of, some kind of common experience that they're all mistakenly attributing to their yeah. own faith. Could be. Because Could be. If, there are, if there are 300 different faiths, and there have been a lot more than 300 different faiths uh, in human civilizations over time, then the odds of your Christian one being the one that is that is actually the true interpretation of that spooky experience mm. that you had is one in three hundred, or more accurately, one in three thousand. Yeah. And and you don't know, you don't know, you know, you have no grounds for believing one way or the other because you can't transplant yourself into the heads right. of the other people from other faiths That's true. to see how convincing it is to them that their experience aligns with the truth of Muhammad being the final prophet mm. or the truth of Vishnu being the ultimate god right or the or the truth of abraham being the um being the person that you have to put the most faith in so uh, it's possible in some ways this is why i sort of respect people who change their faith more than people who remain in in their faith like if you're a if you're a jihadist muslim who was brought up an evangelical christian at least to some extent you've done the hard yards of trying to think through what it is that you believe and trying to pick a faith that seems to be the most yep. uh, true to you. The likelihood of the... I mean, everyone who's born in India as a Hindu thinks that Hinduism is true. Everyone who's born in uh, who's born of Muslim parents largely thinks that Islam is true. Mm-hmm. Everyone who's born a Jew largely thinks that Judaism is true. Everyone who's born a Catholic largely thinks that Catholicism is true. Uh you know, you can have, there are all kinds of amazing experiences you can have, but the likelihood that those amazing experiences tell you anything about the falsehood or otherwise of the holy books that were written centuries or millennia ago in the particular uh, culture or religion that you happen to have been raised is vanishingly slim. Yeah, well, it, yeah. without with running risk to sound obscurist or put, you know, attack the source or things like that, it is possible then the same way we understood Adams and then more deeply understood them that, the, I mean, who am I to say that maybe those, all the religions aren't point, that all those experiences are valid in some way that even though our book, the Bible has it wrong, maybe they all do. Maybe there's something we uncover that says, oh, they all were right at this, in some yeah. deeper way or something like that. So well, I'm not making any truth claims or putting it on anybody else. I don't even expect to convince anybody or for anybody to, to believe what I believe. Nonetheless, I have to do the hard work of sorting it out for myself, and I change my well, views all the time. I actually didn't grow up. Uh, I didn't even have the faith that any of that was true until, you know, at like 17 or something. I grew up thinking it was clearly bullshit. So if that gives any credence to how I got into it, I didn't just grow Look, up if they, assuming if, it. But. If what you say is true, and it, and it well might be, that all religions are right in some fundamental way, um, right, but then, then the only correct posture to have in this world is to be essentially an atheist or agnostic because all that means is that you're mm-hmm. you're disputing or disbelieving the fact claims of official orthodoxy of official doctrines of man-made churches mm-hmm. because the problem with the claim that they're all a bit right 
is that they can't all be a bit right without fundamentally demolishing the entire artifice of of the doctrines. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I mean, that's what it, I'm it saying is so interesting about about looking at the Quran and listening to people talk about the pr- problem of Islam and what true believers are because – I mean, that's what I'm saying. I'm, 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 I'm enjoying thinking through this and having to do the work of it because clearly they, that's, there's a problem there with them being uh, true believers and that the way they're reading their text has to be wrong. So then when I look at that, I try to use that as the objective case. Like, hey, do I really want them to read it as true believers and think all these little details? Well, then I cannot expect to read mine as such either is kind of the way that I take that. Yeah, I mean, the, the religions are mutually exclusive. Most, at least the big monotheisms are mutually exclusive. If if the Quran and the Hadith are the ultimate word, then sure. the Christian Bible is wrong because it didn't or, foresee... Or re- you could be reading it wrong as reformers and people would... Well, the like words them. are wrong. The words are wrong. Yeah, you can always squint and look at it and mm-hmm. twist it, reinterpret it and throw bits out, which we always do, of course. That's how we get modern civilized ideas out of the well, Bible. Well, for instance, I don't hold that, that, the ark, that the ark had the animals in it and, and I don't, that's clear. I can't. There's no way I can think that actually happened. Right. You know, so... You know, <laughs> that's the that's the tension of it, yeah, and so I wasn't we, even trying to bring that up to debate this. And I, if you want to debate it all you want, you'll win. I won't. I'm just admitting <laughs> the intellectual part of me working through it and thinking about it. I think is interesting to, that you can sit here with me and we can discuss even this. Uh, and the, my audience is getting here. I just get a huge thrill and kick out of it. And, and I, yeah. don't, I don't listen to you guys in order to bolster my opinion and find the counter argument. I literally agree with you on almost everything you ever say, you know, that not mm. everything you ever say, but your, your, my, uh, the other podcast I do is called the bad Christian podcast. And it's kind yeah, of a yeah. Christian yeah. reforming movement. And there's a mm. lot of people there. There's a lot of people that are they're like, wait a minute, this stuff is bullshit that we've been doing. It is. And mm. it's, you know, we can look at it. We can talk about it honestly. Cause if you can't do that, you can't do it. I mean, you can't do anything, you know. Sorry for that. So I, that, this yeah. whole process is interesting for me. And like I said, I don't know. I, maybe I wind up not non-Christian in the future. It's possible. So yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think the most open-minded spiritual perspective is just to be. I sometimes I sometimes put it this way and say that I'm I'm an atheist towards formal religions, mm-hmm. and I'm an agnostic towards. Uh, the existence of some kind of God. Yep, I would go far enough to say any fundamentalism, including Christian, is bad. Wrong, bad. No. Yeah, but then I don't really understand what the whole point of the thing is. I mean, either either the creator of the universe wrote a book or he didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't really understand saying, well, the Noah bit is wrong, but I'm going to believe the Mary as a virgin bit. Like, I mean, either this is a divine text or it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, either there's a consciousness behind the cosmos which wrote a, which wrote a book or... Or the book is just like any other book, like Shakespeare or like a Beethoven symphony, somehow kind or, or of divinely can, inspired in a metaphorical way by human creativity, but not actually true. Well, or it combines or contains some of divine revelation as told or even tainted by human writers and time and technology and translations. It, it, it could be that. I don't, it I, could be, but, in that, but, in, in that, but if that's the case, then there's no point in trusting any of it because we don't know which bits are wrong. Except for the part where you f- can't escape that it seems verified to you internally, which is, again, you can't t- translate to another person, and the things that you learn and as you apply them pragmatically bear out. I'm not saying but scientific. Then but, but then you're just talking about philo- essentially a good philosophical text. I mean, you could it's say the same. somewhere in between a good philosophical text. Right. I think it's somewhere in between a good philosophical text that contains truths to glean stuff from and not all, you know, but not pure 
fiction. Maybe somewhere in between, and that's where I currently feel. And we just had to try to do the best we can to figure it out the best we can. But anyway, yeah, maybe. I mean, but I, yeah, but I, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think you know that you're only giving credence to improbable historical claims because it's too hard to, it's too hard to to face up to what it would mean for all of the other good philosophical stuff. Yeah. If those truth claims were false, if it were just a book written by a bunch of uh, medieval peasants from thousands of years ago, then that 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 raises all kinds of other threatening questions to a whole bunch of other stuff that you believe about Christianity, mm-hmm. and that's why you're still pretending that there is any reason <laughs> to credence yeah. to, to to historical fact tr- claims about truth that that are that there's no other reason to to believe in. Yeah, well, there could be facts in there that are true that I think are not true. That's also a possibility, but I think it, it certainly feels verified. It feels reasonable, and I don't have a, a way to not believe it based on my personal experiences that there's not something more to it that I had to do the work of untangling is the shortest way. But what if your but what if your personal like spiritual woo woo experiences uh, affirmed that that the Noah story was true? Well, I, I mean, I don't see how they could in that do that. Well, by this, by whatever the mechanism is oh, that I you're, what you're saying. That like they've if shown I had, you if I was Christianity ta- is yeah. true. Okay, so I, in that situation, I'd be whisked up to heaven and seen a vision, and I actually saw the ark go and go, "Holy shit, that was real!" Well, no, I, I, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you said a few moments ago that that there is that you've had personal experiences that you can't mm-hmm. really share or articulate that reveal to you that Christianity is true. What if you had the same such experience that revealed to you that the Noah's Ark story was true? Yeah, well, that, that ha- I mean, I'd have to at least the work to do there. You know what I mean? I couldn't say, but I don't believe that. You know, you, I, I just, you can't help what you believe to some sense. For instance, you can't, you can't do me a solid favor and be a genuine believer in Jesus for the next two hours for an experiment. That's not one you're capable of doing. Like you could say, I'll try. I wish I could. I can pretend to, but you can't yeah. actually do the work of believing something you don't believe. And I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be vulnerable enough with somebody I know that could destroy me, even intellectually. That, uh, but that, I, I, that I, think I can't believing help is but believe what from, I believe. And I, I, I think believing I, is know. different from unbelieving, though, isn't it, Matt? I can't force myself to believe in to believe that Jesus was divine um, for two hours. But mm-hmm. if you told me something that disproved something else that I believe, mm-hmm. I would easily find, I would find it easy to stop believing in That's, something. Yeah, you're right. That, that would if be you easy. showed me evidence that like the, that Tsar Nicholas II of Russia actually, you know, had never existed and that that whole period of Russian history had been fabricated or something, um, I could doubt, I could sure. severely doubt yep. that, right? You, you can. And if you get all the way down to a, a one, you know, you're going to get at some point still down to a philosophical thing where it's a, it's a skeptical mindset versus hopeful. And I, I'm primarily skeptical, which is why it's 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 an interesting ride, mm. for, ride for me. But, you know, at some point you're going to get down to, well, 1% certainty, but have hope. And that's a philosophical mindset. or You know, you can, you're going to get all the way down to that because it's not you're yeah. not actually going to empirically prove something didn't happen i'm not you know what i mean like that's no that's right you, you I mean, can say it's low likelihood of factual yeah. certainty and still not conclude a materialist worldview for instance yeah that's yeah that's right that's right and i do i do think that anyone who proclaims to have certainty that uh consciousness is purely uh, a byproduct of of chemical and physical processes that that has nothing that there is no mystery there 
is being just as arrogant as a person who claims, as the theologian who claims to know what happens to us after we after we die. Um, yeah, these are these are not things. There are certain things that we just cannot know. Yeah, and, and, and I think consciousness is is, the, is really the biggie. It was not my intent for that even to really come up. Um, that's not my interest. <laughs> it wasn't the thing I say for them in the podcast. I just found it worth noting that. Uh, just the thrill it gets me to, to have heard you be able to say the stuff you do to the audience that I have, which is probably largely more conservative than I actually mm. personally am. And at that point in itself, it makes me, you know, it just makes me excited. No, I love it. It's really interesting as well. I like coming on, on shows which have a slightly different audience because there can yep. be a little bit of an echo chamber effect, exactly. right? Yeah. You know, people listen to me and they listen to Sam Harris mm-hmm. and they listen to, I don't know, Richard Dawkins' speeches and, uh, you know, uh, and there can be a, a tendency to kind of hear the same old stuff over and over but i think what what it's important for us all to be talking into into different different Mm -hmm. silos Right. For instance, I don't spend any time listening to sermons on podcasts. <laughs> I mean, I listen to your, you guys' podcasts and all the stuff out there in the, the purely genuine way of it's what I want to listen to. You know, and that, that that's where my mind often mainly is. So, yeah. But uh, but you know, you've been a, a big influence on me, and just again, like I said, your show's great. We the people live and stuff, and I just love the honesty, the vulnerability, and just being able to really look at stuff objectively and say without it being about identity or attack or whatever it's just it's just it's exciting i just i really enjoy the the discourse part of it well thanks matt it's uh it's it's really great to be here and i've really enjoyed uh enjoyed chatting chatting about all this i like that we managed to get into theology who'd have thought yeah i I was gonna avoid in fact i don't even do i don't even do religious stuff on that we do the bad christian podcast we do all that and this is Mm. what i do so i can talk about the stuff i actually think about and care about most of the time which is science technology music that's what I like, actually. That's where I spend my time thinking. And the, yeah. But I live in and have been in this culture of... Actually, I come up through something like a Christian band. And it's just, mm. it's just... You know, that culture just drives me so crazy. And it's so cool to see that even in that community, people can just be, do their thing now and talk about it. And, you know, mm. let go of things that obviously seem harmful or bad. And we don't... You know, it's, it's all that stuff has been really fun. So. No, it's fascinating. And I think, I think people who come from that background and have an experience growing up... Uh, around the kinds of communities that uh, that you're that you've been familiar with are, are the people who are the best placed actually yeah. to to articulate these kinds of ideas mm-hmm. in ways that resonate with people who need to hear them because if it's a Sam Harris or or, or someone like me who have essentially always been secular then right. uh, you know often it just it goes straight past it goes straight you know it doesn't yeah. even land with well, yeah, people like I said are, I started not it. believing in it and then I did believe in it and now it feels like I'm coming off of the ride a little bit to be honest but. <laughs> Um, but the the thing about it is, would you be surprised to hear like you know that you had a, a decent amount of religious listeners? Do you think you do? I bet I bet you'd be surprised that you do. I think it depends what yeah, I think it depends what you mean by religious, right? Um, well, at least people like me, and then even mm. more conservative than that. Would you be surprised to know that? I don't know if you do or not. I'm just suggesting if I'm here, there must be. Others. I would be surprised if there were a lot of no. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of kind of nominally religious people like yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> so now I'm nominally nominally religious. Okay, that's I would, I would I would call you nominally okay. religious because you're not uh, because you don't actually believe in all of the things that are. Uh, is that me? Or yeah, is that you? Is that's that, you, but no big deal. All right, let me try to shut that up. Well, I've taken a lot of your time, so I'll let you off. Look, I really appreciate um, it. It's been okay. Really good. <laughs> okay, great. But I'm glad uh, you. You know, anyway, appreciate it. This has been. This has been. Super yeah, cheap. no, great to talk to you as uh, as well, Matt. And thanks for the invitation. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, great to talk to you. Cheers. See ya. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.
jabberjawmedia.com. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.